Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to be together, uh, to fellowship, to worship you, to experience your grace and to be reminded of your grace. Uh, we pray that you would bless the sermon, that you would uh, inspire us and give us clarity and help us to understand uh, what you designed the church to do and, uh, and how much we should expect the church to accomplish. Uh, we pray that you would uh, just give us grace in that and we thank you for your love and amen. So today we're continuing our series called the GCF Vision. Uh, the vision, or the GCF vision, is a term that we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on it since Greg was teaching at RCF. Uh, so we're, we're doing this series where we try to concisely yet thoroughly explain what the GCF vision is. Uh, so in this series, we're focused... The GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And in this series, we're focusing on five of them. Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based rather than performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a, a victorious eschatology. So we're still on part four of this series, or subsection four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. Uh, last week, we talked about how the church is a family, and God wants Christians to actually think of each other as family and actually treat each other like family. Uh, today's will probably be the last one we do on understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. Uh, Today's sermon is called A Vision for the Potential of the Church. So my whole purpose for this sermon, there's only one point. There's only one thing you have to remember. My whole point for this sermon is to give a vision for the potential of the church. I want us to think about how much the church could accomplish if every member in every local congregation walked in the fullness that God has for us. It's kind of a mental exercise is kind of the point of this sermon, to really think about how much the church could accomplish. Because I feel like, uh, especially in the United States in modern times, a lot of Christians have a, a very low view of what the church can accomplish. So let's just go through this mental exercise and think about what, what could the church accomplish if every Christian and every local congregation walked in the fullness that God has for us. So before we get into uh, a list of 12 things that I have that I want us to kind of envision or think about, I just want to say that the church can accomplish a lot if every member does a little. The, the, the church as a whole can accomplish a lot if every member does a little. I want to look a bit at Nehemiah chapter 3, a few verses from Nehemiah chapter 3. So in Nehemiah chapter 3, uh, Nehemiah is trying to get the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt. The walls of Jerusalem defend Jerusalem. And, you know, Jerusalem got invaded and the walls got destroyed, basically, or damaged, and now they need repaired. So Nehemiah has been tasked with seeing to it that the walls of Jerusalem get repaired. That's a rather big job. But it got done. But let's look at how it got done. Let's look at a few verses. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 28. I forgot to put that one in my notes. 
Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. So the priests were working on the gate that they called the horse gate, because it's a wall that goes around the city, and it has gates at various points. And each priest just repaired the part that was opposite his own house. None of them tried to repair the entire gate. Each one just did the little part of the gate that was next to their house. Let's also look at verse 10. Next to them, Jedediah, the son of Herapham, repaired opposite his house. And next to them, Hatash, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Let's also look at verse 23. After them, Benjamin and Hazhub repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, uh, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. And let's look at verse 29. And Zadok, and after them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. After them, Shemiah, the son of uh, Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. So, uh, giving away the ending of Nehemiah, they got it done. Amen. It got repaired. But the way that it got done is each person took on a little bit of work. It wasn't a lot of work. Uh, well, there were people who took on probably more than just opposite their own house. But quite a lot of people just took up repairing the part of the wall that's next to their house. And I just want us to kind of get from that that the church can accomplish a lot if every member does a little. And sometimes members don't feel like doing a little because we, we feel like, you know, my little bit's just a little. It doesn't count for much. It's not going to do anything. But every member doing a little has a lot. All these people repairing the little bit of the wall next to their house led to the wall getting repaired. Let's also look at Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the church grows when each part, each means every, when every part is doing what it's supposed to be doing. So the church can accomplish a lot if every member, member does a little. So let's start this mental exercise on how much the church could accomplish if we all walked in the fullness that God has for us. There's uh, 12 ideas I want us to consider if every Christian did these things and if every local congregation did these things. The first one Consider if every Christian considered God's kingdom to be the purpose of their life on earth, which we should. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. And Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him uh, who for their sake died and was raised. Let's also look at Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So all Christians are supposed to live for God and to put his kingdom first. And that's supposed to be played out in practical ways. But oftentimes we're tempted to kind of put God second or put God in his kingdom next to something else, especially as Americans. Uh, It's very tempting to just pursue the American dream and think this is what American Christians do. We just work our jobs and, and live and die. But God wants us to consider Uh, our relationship with him and the expansion of his kingdom, the purpose of our lives. And he wants us to put that first and to be seeking to do whatever we can to take part in that. But if every Christian really considered that the purpose of their lives, just imagine how much of a difference the church could make. So that's the first idea I want us to consider. The second one is, if every Christian was committed to regular prayer and fasting for kingdom progress. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and verse 8. I think I printed the wrong scripture sheet. But maybe I didn't. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Um, I think I meant First Timothy. <laughs> first Timothy, if we could get First Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Let's also look at Matthew 6, verses 17 and 18. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I, I include this just to point out that Jesus says when you fast. There is an expectation in the Bible or an assumption that Christians are going to fast, that Christians are going to, uh, and this is kind of mentioned in the context of prayer, that Christians will fast, at least occasionally, as part of their prayer. And lastly, let's look at 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If every Christian was committed to regular prayer and fasting for kingdom progress, we would be seeing more kingdom progress being made. But this is something that every Christian should be committed to, praying and fasting for the progress of the gospel. Because God desires to work through prayer and not apart from prayer. So how much the church prays does affect how much we see God move. For an example of that, let's look at Matthew 9, verse 38. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So Jesus was telling the disciples to pray that more work or more gospel workers would be sent for the sake of the gospel. But God could obviously just send more workers without prayer. So why request prayer? It's because God wants the work of the gospel to be done through prayer and not apart from prayer. And because of that, how much Christians pray will affect how much we see God move and how much progress we see being made with the gospel. The third thing I want us to imagine, if every Christian sought to share the gospel with others and was ready and looking for opportunities to share the gospel... Let's look at Matthew 18 verses, uh, Matthew 28 verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So one thing we should always notice about the Great Commission, or Matthew 28, 19 through 20, is that this command to make disciples must be a reclusive command or a recurring command because it's a command and Jesus is in this command saying to teach others to observe all that he has commanded them. And this is a command. So everyone is to be part of making disciples of all nations. Let's also look at 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. So every Christian has a part to play in the Great Commission, and every Christian should be ready to share the gospel if opportunity comes up. So at the end, we're going to kind of put all these ideas together and just kind of imagine you know, what would be going on in the world if every Christian was doing these things. But imagine if every Christian sought to share the gospel with others and was ready and looking for opportunities to share the gospel. This is something I myself don't do very well at and need to do better at. Number four, if every Christian managed their finances with the purpose of giving to farther God's kingdom as much as possible. Let's look at Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seeking first the kingdom of God applies to every area of life. In every area of life, we should be seeking first or having as top priority the kingdom of God and the expansion of the kingdom of God. We should have as top priority our obedience to God and also seeking to further the gospel and the growth of the church. Let's also look at Luke 16, verses 9 through 11. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with uh, unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? God cares how Christians manage money, and God wants us to, uh, to use unrighteous wealth for kingdom purposes. 
God doesn't want Christians to not care about money or to be poor stewards. He wants us to care about money and to seek to use it for his kingdom. Money isn't evil. The love of money is evil. And Christians are called to manage their money for God's kingdom. I also want to look at uh, 3 John 1, verses 5 through 8. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers with the truth. When we support workers of the gospel, we are fellow workers with them. So the church does need people to be frontline missionaries, but we can't all be frontline missionaries. We can't all get up and leave Dayton and quit our job and go share the gospel in all the places it needs shared throughout the world. Some of us can't even um, go to other parts of the states and do that due to circumstances. But when we support other workers who are working for spreading the gospel, we are taking part in their work, and we should think of it that way. That's what the Bible says. And all Christians should be seeking to do that. Every Christian should manage their finances with the purpose to further God's kingdom. And as the church starts to do this more and more, ministries will be well-funded, and ministries that are doing well will have more room to expand, and new ministries will easily be able to start. So I want us to imagine if every Christian managed their finances with the purpose of giving to further God's kingdom as much as possible, how do you think that would look? How much, how much quicker do you think we could make progress? But the next thing I want us to think about or to imagine, if every Christian tried to make the most of their time for God's kingdom. Let's look at Colossians 4 verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let's also look at Ephesians 5 verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. And lastly, let's look at, so those are two clear commands that Christians should try to make good use of their time. You only have a limited amount of time, but you can do things with your time. But let's look at um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So I want to point out that this is the letter to the Corinthians. This is not a letter to Timothy. This is to all Christians. This is to lay people. This is to everybody. This isn't just to quote-unquote professional ministers. He says to everybody, to Christians in general, to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. All Christians can do things with their time for the gospel. Even if you're not um, going to be in full-time ministry, all Christians can do work for the gospel. Christians can volunteer. Christians can spend time in prayer. Prayer is labor. Prayer is work, and it is a valuable work. All Christians can spend time evangelizing. All Christians can spend time learning and growing. 
the more we learn and grow, the better equipped we are to, to help others and to take part in the advancement of the gospel. But learning and growing takes time. Reading takes time. And reading's important. But any Christian can spend their time on these things. Any Christian can use their time to befriend other people. And that makes a difference for the sake of the gospel. Befriending others is a labor of love, especially, you know, in, in the modern world, life has gotten lonelier than we realize sometimes. It can be easy to just live life without having any close friends. And that is a, the case for a lot of adults in the United States, I think. Another fun way we can use our time for the kingdom is doing work, extra work to make extra money. Because Christians should care about money. Let's look at Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's a godly thing to work for the purpose of making money. That is the only reason I go to work, personally. I don't know about y'all, but it is a godly thing to do. If it's honest labor. Paul did say honest labor. But imagine if every Christian in the world tried to make the most of their time for God's kingdom. How much of a difference that could make. That could make a huge difference. But Every individual matters. We should never fear that the contributions we could make to God's kingdom are small. Every member of the church is important, just like every member of a body is important, even though each member of a body can't necessarily do that much on its own. You know, my pinky finger can't do that much on its own, but I would be very, very upset if ever I lost it. My hand as a whole would become less effective, and I as a whole would become less effective. The sixth idea I want us to consider, if every Christian walked in their spiritual gifting and regularly used uh, the gifts of the Spirit. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's just the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So these are uh, the gifts of the spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. And it says the Holy Spirit apportions to each. Every single member of the church has a gift of the spirit that they should be able to walk in regularly. Even though we might not get to choose when we want to use it, we have to work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, and we have to listen to his voice. 
each member of the church should be walking in a gift of the Spirit regularly. Let's look at 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So God gives these gifts throughout the church. But imagine if every believer learned how to use their, gift, their spiritual gift. If that happened, every local church would have the gifts of the Spirit being used. And that would be awesome. Every local church would have the gospel being backed by signs and wonders. Every local church would have supernatural wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Every local church would have the comfort and encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And this is how things are meant to be. And we're looking for you know, God to restore the church to where it should be more and more as time goes on. But imagine how awesome it would be if every Christian walked in their spiritual gifting and regularly used it. This is God's design for the church. And God will give the church grace to get there. The seventh thing I want us to imagine. If every Christian walked in their authority over demons and knew how to minister deliverance. Let's look at Mark 16, verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons and they will speak in new tongues. God gives authority over demons to every believer. And as we saw earlier in the series, demonic activity is more common than we might think because it's not actually Hollywood style, typically. It's not that blatantly obvious most of the time. There's very subtle demonization that goes on frequently. But Christians have authority over demons. And if every Christian walked in their authority over demons and learned how to minister deliverance, like imagine how much of a difference that would make. The eighth idea I want us to consider. If every Christian treated all other Christians like family. So last week, we looked at the idea that all Christians should think of other Christians and actually treat them as family. Let's look at Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50 again. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And it's the will of uh, the father that we believe in Jesus. Jesus is saying that anyone who's a Christian is his true family. But let's also look at John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus expects to, the world to see the glory of God in the church through our love for one another specifically. And that is best shown when every Christian treats other Christians like family. And we might not be there yet, but the church can get there. And this is God's design for the church. Imagine if every Christian did treat all other Christians like family. Unbelievers would really see the love of God in the church. And Christians everywhere would be much better off. There'd be much less loneliness. And each person would be much more supported. 
The ninth idea I want us to consider. If every Christian took studying the Bible seriously. Let's look at Joshua 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Let's also look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be uh, as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So God wants Christians to take the Bible seriously and to really study it. But imagine if, and you know, we've all had times in our lives where we don't take studying the Bible seriously. It's very easy to fall into it. It happens to everyone. But imagine if every Christian in the world did take studying the Bible seriously. Christians would know God better. Christians would be able to defend their faith better. And Christians would have more wisdom. But this is something God does want for every Christian. The tenth idea I want us to consider is if every local church equipped its members for their ministries. Because every member of the church does have ministries. We all have ministry to God, to others, and to the world. But let's look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints, to equip Christians for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Imagine if every church was diligent to teach its members how to parent well and how to disciple others and how to walk in spiritual gifts and how to be a good steward. But I believe that God is working in the church constantly to cause the church to grow and cause the church to get closer and closer to meeting its potential. But imagine if every church really took seriously equipping its members for the ministries they have. The 11th idea I want us to consider, if every local church ministered to the poor in their area. Let's look at James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, I say local churches rather than Christians mostly because I think that a group of Christians together, a.k.a. a local church, is far more capable of actually helping the poor in an area than individuals are. There's a lot of uh, synergy in us working together. And effectively helping the poor can take a lot of effort. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do. It's something more for churches to do together than necessarily for an individual to do by themselves. But imagine if every local church did minister to the poor in their area. If every local church just in the United States even ministered to the poor in their area. What a difference that would make. And lastly, let's consider if every local church had organized efforts to share the gospel in their city. So we've, we've already mentioned the Great Commission, uh, but churches should have 
organized efforts to share the gospel because there's power in working together. There's synergy in a local church. Local churches can accomplish more than disjointed individuals. And also, as local churches grow, they should eventually plant other churches. So I I don't bring up any of these things uh, to make us feel guilty. God's grace is here for us in every one of these areas, even if we're not doing well at them. But again, the whole point of the sermon is to help us have a vision for how effective the church could be. Because I think the church could get to a place where every Christian does do these things and where every local church does these things. But I just want us to really get the idea that the church has great potential. So I want us to put these together and just think about it. Imagine if every Christian considered God's kingdom to be the top priority of their life, and every Christian was committed to regular prayer and fasting for kingdom purposes, and every Christian sought to share the gospel, and every Christian managed their finances for the purpose of the kingdom of God, and every Christian tried to make the most of their time, and every Christian walked in the gifts of the Spirit, and every Christian walked in authority over demons. And every Christian treated all other Christians like family. And every Christian took the Bible seriously, or studying it seriously, and knew it well. And if every local church equipped its members for their ministries, and every local church uh, ministered to the poor in their area, and had organized efforts for the gospel in their city, imagine how effective the church could be. But this is real. This is real potential that the church has. So that being said, uh, we all have a responsibility to make a difference. Like at the beginning of the sermon, we talked about Nehemiah and how Nehemiah's efforts to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, a pretty big task, succeeded because a lot of people did a little bit. And the church is like that. The church can make major progress for the gospel when a lot of people do a little bit. but the church can only be this effective if everyone is committed to doing their part. So in conclusion, I just want everyone to remember that the church has great potential. The church is capable of doing these things, and if Christians start to, we'll really see big, you know, quicker progress being made for the gospel. So let's close in prayer, and then we'll have our communion meditation. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace for us, and we thank you for your love for your church, and we thank you for your vision for your church, Lord. We thank you that you are going to restore uh, your church, and you are going to work through us for the sharing of the gospel, Lord. Uh, We pray that you would just give us grace and that you would help us uh, to focus on you and your power and your love, and, uh, and we thank you. So today's communion meditation uh, is about the, the fact that we have to trust in Christ to sustain us. Let's look at John 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
When a person comes to Christ, they do so because the Father drew them to Christ. And since God is the one who, who draws us to Christ, he's also going to sustain us and keep us in Christ. And as Christians, we can have confidence in God that since he gave us faith, he's going to sustain our faith. Let's look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, or the author and perfecter of our faith, some translations say, who for the joy uh, set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is the author of our faith. He gives us faith because we can't come unless the Father draws us, but Jesus also perfects our faith. God is going to sustain those who come to him. No one can snatch a Christian out of the Father's hand, not even that Christian, because the Father is greater than all. God will sustain us, and by his grace, we can trust him for that. So let's praise him as we come to the table.